My guest today is a managing director in distressed private equity. Please welcome Daniel Gilbert. Dan, how's it going? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Hey, I'm doing fine. I'm doing great. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. I appreciate you having me. Oh, good, good. Well, well, hey, Dan, let's let's jump right into it. Sure. What do you do? What do I do? I am the managing director at a small private equity firm based in Atlanta, where I lead distressed strategy, which sounds a lot fancy. It is. It's it's not fancy at all. <laughs> all right. So so let's talk about it. Can you briefly talk about what distressed strategy private equity is? Yeah, private equity is some version of pooled wealth, whether it's what some people refer to as a family office, which is you know a single or, or small group of individuals that have pooled their money to make investments, or private equity that you know, publicly traded, large, uh, New York City kind of private equity. And there's a lot in between, and I, I certainly fall on the in-between. It's a small firm with, I think, seven or eight of us managing uh, a shade under $100 million of investment. I joined that firm seven months ago to lead distress strategy. And what my goal is, is to not only help the firm through any distress in any of their investments, is to not only be a resource internally, but to seek out distressed investments and take equity positions in companies that need to go through some type of turnaround or renewal. Okay. All right. So you invest in troubled companies' equity. To, you take control of them during a bankruptcy or a restructure, turn them around, and then eventually you sell them or they go public. Uh, they, I don't know about they they go public because <laughs> we are you know I I seek pretty modest investments right. for our size, right? So when you think about going public, you know uh, J Crew has gone private and public and private again. Right. That is, I mean, that is private equity. You think of things getting turned around like Toys R Us got bought right. up or, or the airlines go through very public turnarounds. Yes, we turn them around. Yes, the goal is to sell them. I think getting something someday that went public would be a surprise to all of us. Okay, okay. And then you mentioned equity. So that's a strategy that you deal with, right? Only equity, you're not dealing with any type of debt strategies, the uh, debt control, non-control, any of that? We have, I believe, 72 unique investments. Several of them are debt. Several of them are equity. Out of that 72, only one of them is in the distressed category because I've only been there a couple months. Primarily on the distressed side, we will focus on equity. Distressed debt is a very seasoned business that for us to be a newcomer in it wouldn't really, wouldn't really be efficient. You're just competing against a ton of people to see who can provide the lowest rate and and essentially is taking the most risk of failure. So for us, it's equity. We want control operational standpoint to be able to turn these businesses around. Right. Okay. And and like you said, that's the more risk reward part of it right there, taking the equity side. Okay. And now for distressed private equity, you need to know a lot more about the credit and capital structure, the bankruptcy code, legal process, and how to make serious operational changes for companies, I guess, more so than your vanilla private equity. It's it's actually more of the latter and less of the former. So I do not have a business degree. I do not have a 
background in lending. I do not have a background in capital. My background is in bankruptcy and restructuring. Right. I was an analyst for one of the largest bankruptcy trustees in the country. And so when you look at the bankruptcy code, which not only has a federal layer to it, but layers on a state to state basis, that to me is a, is a, even as a non-lawyer is a language I'm very comfortable speaking. So for me, it is looking at companies typically in bankruptcy, but, but not always. There's receiverships and there's ABCs and there's some that are just flat out distressed and considering entering bankruptcy. So even pre-bankruptcy, it's looking at companies from that standpoint and gaming out the future, what an acquisition would be like, what the value would be to the investors, right? To, to our investors, our capital partners and what the exit strategy would be. And again, it could be an actual exit of fixing it and selling it, or it, it could be an exit of holding it and knowing that it's going to be a, a strong performing asset that provides cash to the parent company. Okay. And so with that, your background has helped you to understand more about that process, the bankruptcy code and the capital structure. Can you just talk about what got you involved in this and what got you here and and how did you even know about getting into private equity? Yeah, sure. So after being a bankruptcy analyst, which I was for about six years, which was in, in California, my wife and I wanted to move to the East Coast. And I moved from being a bankruptcy analyst to in turnaround at a a traditional turnaround firm, typically being called on by either lawyers or workout departments at banks and saying, you know, we have non-performing assets or we have someone who's violated a loan covenant. Can you come in and can you perform a turnaround? So I was at a turnaround firm for three years and the private equity firm I worked for, I happened to be very close with the founding partners and they are friends that I've always wanted to work with. I've consulted for them a few times. We have great synergy and great friendship and the opportunity arose for me to join them. They had a specific project and we had taken several months to sort out what distress strategy would mean to us and, and what our goals would be. And so I chose to make the jump and, and join their firm. But it started as a, as a bankruptcy analyst reading thousands of pages of petitions every month for a trustee and annotating them for the trustee and, and learning all the, all the crevices and corners of the bankruptcy code mm-hmm. to being in turnaround and doing large wind downs and orderly liquidations for failed turnarounds or, or successful turnarounds, getting to be part of a team building complex cash flow models and working capital models, which was a, which was a great thing to learn after leaving a bankruptcy analyst position to kind of add some of that financial analyst experience to it and take it all together and, and bring it into uh, private equity has been a, has been a great, a great meeting of a lot of a uh, lot of experience. Nice. All right. Great. Now you mentioned the turnaround. So basically, you're looking for, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but you're looking for good companies with poor balance sheets. Maybe made a mistake here, a lawsuit, a debt issuance, an acquisition, something that's fixable, some fixable problem, and you're trying to invest in that and turn them around. Now, with that. How are you able to do that with the different industries that you're in? Is it the type of people that you're putting in place for these executives of these companies and boards or that have that expertise? Yeah, really fair question. One of the things that you'll hear any turnaround person say, and my, my, everyone at my old firm and anyone I've ever met included is, you know, our job is not to be an expert in your business, right? So within my three years of turnaround, I was involved with 
a chain of gyms, a chemical company, a chain of grocery stores, a galvanizing facility, a stock investing club, uh, uh, several, um, I mean, you know, I'm in North Carolina, so several textile and f furniture, uh, battery business, property deals, right? My job, I don't need to be an expert in, in textiles, right? right? The problems, you know, the problems are all pretty similar. The solutions are never too far apart, right? The solutions don't tend to be too far from each other. And so as a turnaround person, I look at it in the exact same way as I do as private equity. I don't, we just made an investment in a light manufacturing company with about 30, uh, 35 employees. I don't need to be an expert in what they make. I need, and, and I'm lucky enough to hold the experience in guiding the management team that's there through the distress, mm. right? So one of the things that drives an investment for us, or the decision to make an investment is the management team. Yeah. I can list several investments we've passed on because at the end we're sitting around the table going, we don't want to work with that person, right? right. You know, a, a turnaround takes 26 hours a day and eight days a week to get stabilized, to save jobs, to save a business takes more hours than life provides you for the first couple of months. And if you don't want to climb into the trench with someone, or you don't feel that that person has the ability to keep pulling, even when it hurts, you know, you, we've walked away from investments because they're, they're nice people. I'm nothing bad to say about these people, but, but that mentality to tough it out through a turnaround is, it can be very hard to find. And it, right. and so it's again, it's it's not necessarily who we find or who we bring in, but it's who's already there. You know, who's there and what do they need? How can we support them? It's certainly not just money. There's lots of dry powder, lots of money floating around out there, but it's money and support. You know, do we have industry information? Do we have contacts adjacent to the industry? Do we have professionals in our network that we're comfortable leaning on to help this company get through a turnover? Right. Okay. No, that makes sense. All right. And a turnaround takes 26 hours a day and eight days a week. I like that. I like that. <laughs> so, 30, 30 hours a day for the first uh, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's someone. There's someone I'm working with now and he has, a, he has a great phrase and he's one of the managers at a company we invested in that we're really, really proud of that's doing very well. And he says, he says, you push it into piles and see what comes to the top and you yeah. have to keep pushing it in piles and you have to pulling stuff off the top because you know if you don't work your way down uh, or many people say if you don't eat the elephant one bite at a time i mean it just it just takes you over it just yeah. it, it just in, it, it engulfs you and, and you get you just get pulled up to sea mm. now on a very high level for the uh -oh. turnaround would you would you say that the changes that you're making are shutting down your less profitable product lines or or stores you're increasing sales and marketing in core in core markets you're reducing management or, or headcount and then selling non-core assets yeah on a on a very high level those are certainly things i experienced working in turnaround for the things that we're looking at to acquire and or invest in, they're typically not that big. Uh, part of the reason is, you know, I am, I'm only one man, right? Gotcha. So I do all, I do all the analysis. I look at between 50 and 60 companies every month. Mm. I do all the analysis. That means I do all the bird dogging. If I find something that is of interest, I have actually spent most of this morning starting to build my knowledge on a company 
in Texas that we're, we're interested in. But at the same time, I'm getting follow-ups from, from companies I've been in touch with for weeks or, or maybe months. And so because I'm only one person, they are smaller, smaller in size, not necessarily smaller in dollar amounts, but, but smaller, smaller in size. So it's not that we're, you know, not that we're going to go into something like a, a Ford or an airline and say, oh, you know, or, you know, uh, you know, the dollar store or Claire's and, oh, we're going to shut down these 40 stores and we're going to keep these 60 stores. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's never going to be of that scale. So certainly as a, as a turnaround professional, I had experience closer to that scale, but from a private equity standpoint, I have to bring the partners investments that I know uh, I can, if not manage alone, over oversee independently. Right. Okay. Now that makes sense. And then you mentioned doing all the analysis and a due diligence. So besides doing a due diligence on the company, are you doing any other due diligence, maybe on other firms that have bought into the companies or have tried to buy debt or equity into the company? I have seen some that have some private equity involvement and, and people are trying to get out or they're in bankruptcy and, and, and they're going to be essentially forced to get out or restructure, but typically I'm seeing you know what would be what would be virgin companies, people that have traditional commercial debt, and and they've come across a hard time. A lot of it's COVID related. Uh, I can tell you uh, one. I, I I can tell you one that I liked, and the, the partners didn't even want me to research, but uh, it was a laundry service at one of the biggest airports in the country. But their contracts were with Emirates and Lufthansa and Swiss Air. And it's all these just, just fantastic giant high-end airlines. And and you know they're going to come back, but the question is, is when? And when I essentially projected out the hold of the investment timeline, they, they said the the length was, was conceivably too far. And so I, I liked it. I, I'm also an air, airplane nerd, so I, I like airplanes. <laughs> but uh, I liked it. And, and that's the kind of stuff you're seeing. They're, they're not bad businesses. They're, they're almost always not bad people. Uh, and, and so by default, you know, it's not been bad or corrupt management, but you, we're seeing a lot, a lot of COVID impacted businesses, a lot of hotels, a lot of restaurants, a lot of airline or airport adjacent industry. Nice. Okay, great. Great example. Thanks. That makes sense. And you're able to take advantage because you have these funds locked up for long periods of time, right? So you can wait for a turnaround to happen. Um. Yeah, but, but, I need to at least have a sense of how long it's going to take. Right. right. So, so our, some of our capital partners and some of our investors are in different strokes for different folks. There's people that don't want their money tied up for three years. And there's people that are comfortable having their money tied up for 10 years. Right. And so depending on where the money is sourced internally, how it is managed internally, because the, our distress strategy is not a standalone fund. They're not people specifically invested in the work I'm doing. So it, that cuts both ways. First is I don't have a mandate to spend money, right? When I was in bankruptcy and I was analyzing all these bankruptcies for the trustee, I would get constant calls from people. What can I buy? Do you have any land? You know, oh, we need to deploy. We need to deploy capital. I don't need to do anything. I, I need to take my time and find the right investments. And so on one hand, I have no pressure to deploy capital, but on the other hand, that when I need capital, questions come up of, okay, internally, where are we gonna draw that capital from and what restrictions might be on it? So for example, okay, you can have this capital, whatever you do, Dan, this company has to be stabilized in X number of months. You have to refinance us out. You have to, you have to be 
able to go to a bank or go to a, an asset-based lender and get this company um, paying paying a traditional ABL loan to, to get our capital back in in X number of months. So so it's it's a, certainly a double-edged sword. Okay, all right. And then you mentioned the partners and the investors. So earlier we talked basically about the operations and investing. Now the fundraising, are you doing that as well? I'm not. Okay. All right. No, I'm not. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to know some people in my time that are, are wealthy enough to invest yeah. in private equity. Uh-huh. I, I certainly am not. I'm not wealthy enough to invest in private equity, but I've been lucky enough to know some people and introduce them to the fund. But, but no, I don't do any fundraising. Okay. All right. And so let's talk about what a typical day looks like for you. How does that look? So it depends, right? It's <laughs> if I don't have any active investments and, and I currently do. So I've been traveling every single week since the middle of April. This is my first full week at home um, since the middle of April. And if you're listening to the podcast, it's, it's July 15th today. Uh, and so so with something so hot with this investment that we just made, I am in that company as the chief restructuring officer. There's you know uh, over 30 employees. It's that light manufacturing company I previously mentioned. That is my my sole focus, mm. right? So I have put aside reading, looking for new companies. I have reduced focus on my pipeline because what does a pipeline matter if if there's a failure on the front end, right? Because this is not the pipeline anymore. It's not it's not just on spreadsheets. It's it's real. It's people's jobs. It's people's livelihoods. And we made a commitment not only to the management but to the employees at that company. So I'm in there as the chief restructuring officer. So my day to day is is guiding the management team um, through. I mean, uh, cargo ships cargo ships coming out of Hong Kong and we're having trouble getting a corporate credit card because the bank we're using is a pretty actually a small regional bank. It's not, you know, not a big bank, not a Wells or a Chase. So I can't just sign up for a credit card. It's, you know, we needed to update the badges to get into the building for the security system. So it's, it's digesting whatever someone needs to bounce off me, whether it's a production manager or the order or the head of product or, or the CFO. Nice. All right. Now, the other side of that, what's my day look like if <laughs> uh, if I am not dealing with uh, dealing with an active investment or, or dealing uh, dealing in a chief restructuring officer role? I am in my pajamas uh, with my my computer monitors, and I am pouring through bankruptcy data. Mm. Bankruptcy data. It's it's all public. Anyone can go get it. It's, it's called Pacer. Is the system? You can go. You can go find um, fifty cents bankruptcy when. He, filed in Connecticut a couple years ago. You can go find all this data. Mm. Uh, it's public. It's 10 cents a page. I'm pouring through bankruptcy data and other sources to find opportunity. Interesting. All right. Okay. And so with that, talking about that, you're reading through all these different type of bankruptcy data. You're doing a lot of analysis. You're guiding the management team, the presentations that you're doing, all of that. Can you talk about the skills and characteristics that you think are most important to be successful in what you do? Yeah, I think one of the first ones is is knowing what you don't know. Uh, it's something that I learned later in life, raising your hand saying, I don't know, raising your hand saying, can you please explain that? When you're dealing in any distressed or turnaround situation, or you're even looking at distressed companies, or maybe I've gotten to the point where I'm going to pitch the partners, I've 
something I've built a model and I've, I've been talking to the, to the owner of the company or I've been talking to the attorneys and I've taken months and I'm going to now go and pitch this to the partners. Now I get a question. I don't know. Right. I don't know. I can get you the answer, right? I have the skill set to get you the answer, but I don't know. So, so one of the biggest things is, is knowing what you don't know. And the, the second one is trusting what you do know. Right? Working in a distress situation leaves very little time to do deep, thoughtful analysis. Even, you know, even if you follow some massive chapter 11 and, you know, again, you know, I, to drag on the airlines, but, you know, they're in the papers a lot, or at least they were in the past couple of years through bankruptcies and mergers, you know, it may feel like those articles come out, you know, months at a time or updates come out months at a time, but, but there's very little time for, long drawn out meetings, deep analysis. You have to trust your experience. You have to make a decision. And if you make a poor decision, you have to move forward from the place you've put yourself. There's, there's almost never a chance to go backwards. So, so it's, it's knowing what you don't know, knowing who to ask and, and trusting what you do know. Got it. All right. Now, you mentioned steps that you took being in a bankruptcy firm and a turnaround firm. Now, what about a little bit before that? Can you talk about undergrad? Uh, what you do? Did you go straight from undergrad to doing this, or no? So we'll, we'll keep going backwards. So yeah. um, I've been at this firm for seven months. Prior to that, I spent uh, roughly four years in turnaround, and prior to that, was six years in California as a bankruptcy analyst. Prior to that, I was a rowing coach. I was coaching rowing at both the Division Three and the Division One level, as well as some junior programs in the summers. And the reason I was a rowing coach is prior to that, I was at the U.S. National Training Center. I was trying to make the Beijing Olympics and then trying to make the U.S. National Rowing Team. So, nice. so you, have to, you have to work all the way backwards to understand how I get from coaching rowing to working as a bankruptcy analyst. And, and really, coaching was an opportunity. Uh, it, was, it, was an, it was a nicotine patch, mm. really. When you've spent as much time as it takes to get to the U.S. Training Center to to be, and I don't want to say in consideration, but certainly in the closest of proximities right. to making to making your team, for that to come to an end, for that to stop, for whatever reason, some people it's injury, some people it's retirement. For me, it was healthcare. There was no Affordable Care Act. And my parents said, we love you very much. And you're living in your car in Princeton, but we're absolutely not paying for COBRA. Go get a job. And so it was it was healthcare. So, so my training and my Olympic dream came to the, came to an end because of that, but I still wanted to be connected to the sport. So I took a couple of years and I coached before deciding what direction I wanted to go professionally. Nice. And do you do any rowing now? I do. Yeah. Uh, so I was a coxswain. I, I don't row. I was a coxswain. I was the guy in the back of the boat who does the steering and the planning, which, which might not come as a surprise now. Uh, and so I will get into boats maybe two, three times a year with friends uh, every year in, in Boston at the head of the Charles in October, uh, but not not very much. Okay. All right. And do you watch it at all? I do. Oh, I okay. can't wait. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's on every four years at the Olympics, so I right. can't wait. Right. Nice. Nice. Uh, luckily, you know, YouTube now gives me access to watching races that I used to only have to read about. But yeah, every four years there's rowing on TV. It's on the Olympics. Nice. And actually over... For those of you that, well, if you listen to this on an audio medium, you can't see on our Zoom, but over my shoulder is a frame Sports Illustrated with the very last time rowing was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Oh. I think it's like 1964. 1964, wow. 1964, 65, yeah. Oh, wow. 
All right. <laughs> well, so let's talk about what do you love about what you do in distressed private equity? Yeah, it's never the same. Mm. I love I love that it's never the same. I, I know people that even with our own firm, they are, you know, they're working on lending products or they're working on bridge lending in real estate, right? For them, the only thing that changes is the address on the paperwork. Mm-hmm. It's never the same. We've had some companies we've turned down We've had some we've missed on, right? That we really wanted and we weren't able uh, to bring together. And none of those, whether it's something we've acquired, something we've turned down or something we've missed on, none of them have been the same. Each each one is a snowflake. And so I know on any given day, I'm either going to read about or do something brand new. And and I love it. You know, every, every file I get, every piece of bankruptcy data I go through, none of them are the same. Even if it's a restaurant, there's no, it can be two restaurants in Florida. It can be two restaurants in Florida in the Southern district of Florida. They can both be in Miami. They're not going to be the same, right? Yeah. You, you look at data, you look at them and they each tell a different story. And so I know every day I'm going to probably learn something new, but definitely read something new. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Even though you said just restaurants alone, they're all different, but just all the different industries that you mentioned earlier in the interview, that that's amazing. And then I've done some business valuation and complex securities valuation work and just working on all different types of companies and all different types of industries. Like you said, it's you don't stop. It's it, you're always learning, always learning. So it's great. And that yeah. was just that was just the industry stuff worked on well, I was in turnaround. If we zoomed all the way out to to the six years as a bankruptcy analyst, I've worked on operating chapter sevens, which is a heck of a unicorn. That was a 36 hole golf resort. I shut down the largest chain of adult leather stores on the West Coast. I have shut down nightclubs and roofing companies and C stores corner grocery stores. You know, I actually worked at a C store for a couple of weeks because of the bankruptcy rules the business had been sold in a 363 sale, but they weren't able to change over the WIC account, the, uh, the, the uh, what's it, the women, infant, child account, the WIC yeah. account. And because they weren't able to change it over, the judge's order permitted the buyer to use the debtor's WIC account as long as it was supervised. So I would be in the store like three days a week at night running all the WIC transactions to verify because you know, it's, it's, it was in a part of town of California. We were not going to close it down. We had to take WIC. It was essential for the community for WIC to be available. It was more than a corner store. They had fresh meat. They had um, produce and vegetables. And so and so we didn't want to shut down the WIC account. So the judge was like, that's fine as long as someone's supervising it. So I, I, I worked in a C-store. <laughs> yeah, oh, I, I worked, I worked I like a mini grocery store. <laughs> Delhi. You know, I, I worked there a couple of days a week because I supervised the, the WIC account to make sure that not only the person that bought the business maintained the value, the going concern, but that the community still had the access to the food. You definitely got in the weeds. You got your hands dirty oh, there. <laughs> oh, oh boy, the, the stories of getting in the weeds don't end. <laughs> so uh, I'm curious with the nightclubs, how, how did those end up? Just I, I wonder what they own. <laughs> the, the nightclub was a receivership. The nightclub was a receivership. They owed uh, about two and a half million dollars to the bank. They had stopped replying. And so receiver was put in place. My boss and I hired security. Club <laughs> closed at two. We showed up at 145 with our unarmed entourage and we sat at the bar and when they told us to leave we took out a court order and bank bags and we took wow off. wow and <laughs> uh certainly this, this 
maybe $2 million of cash in a car, right? It's maybe twenty, thirty thousand. 30,000. Uh, but they certainly called their banker the next day. Oh, wow. That's interesting, man. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, all right. Now, so what about challenges? The flip side of this, what type of challenges do you have? What keeps you up at night? <laughs> so what, ke- what keeps me up at night is, is missing some some type of deadline, right? One of the, one of the you know, if you're going to eat the elephant one bite at a time, it's bound to give you indigestion. It is hard to remember, or it is hard to keep focus on the fact that you didn't put these companies where they are. You you found them, you found them where they are, and you can't save or help or even try. And I I think save is the wrong word because even for us, we're investing. And we're trying, right? Our goal is we have a goal uh, of success. Um, everybody, right? You can't invest in everybody. You can't help everybody. And so when you get into conversations with these attorneys or these debtors or these business owners and you start to peel back the layers, you may stop for some silly reason right away, right? You'd be, you know, oh, oh, I thought you owned the land. I'm sorry. You know, this, this business is less interesting to me if you don't own the land or something, it, it, there's a million different reasons not to pursue. And, and there's probably more reasons not to ever call someone, right? Just, you know, if I look at 70, 60 or 70 a month or 50 or 60 a month, I might only reach out to two or three. Wow. Right. And even then, you know, the chances of getting anywhere, the chances of even considering to invest, the chances of me getting to the point where I'm pitching the partners is, is so slim. So, so that means, 55, you know, 59 a month, I'm reading about these people's lives and I am deleting the information. I, I'm, I'm skipping them on my list because my goal is to make strategic investments to benefit our investors, right? That's that's my goal. I, we have to make our investors money. Right. You know, it is not sainthood. It is not charity. And so I think one of the hardest parts is remembering but also managing the emotion of you're you're reading about someone's life you know you're there was a conversation i was in with someone i've been in this conversation with them since december they founded the company i love the company i love the brand we're having trouble bringing things together because this person's having trouble separating their role as a ceo and their role as a founder as a CEO, they need to do what's best for the company. But as a founder, I mean, and I hear it. I completely understand where they are. I'm not pushing them. I'm not, you know, negotiating. But from a personality standpoint, it gives us great pause that someone is thinking as a founder and, oh, I've been working on this for years. Yeah. And, oh, I invented this and I invented that. And I absolutely agree with them. But again, my job is to make money for investors. It's not to distribute charity. And so it, it becomes very hard to separate. Yeah. When it's their baby, but at the same yeah. time, yeah, stakeholders. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I definitely understand that. It's a, that's a tricky situation. Now, you mentioned some moments earlier. Are there any memorable moments that, that really stick out to you in your career? In the kind of totality of my career, Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, there's a lot of, a lot of memorable moments. I, you know, I worked on a project in Arizona and ice stopped by. We're in very rural central Arizona. Ice came by and, and kind of checked in on the employees. I don't speak Spanish, but um, I, I was told everything is okay. Um, 
the uh, the chain of adult stores I shut down in California was memorable for a lot of reasons, but let's leave it at that's incredibly hard product to sell secondhand. I think much like medical advice, uh, people want to buy it themselves. You know, <laughs> I, I could not get a single auctioneer to even auction it for me because they wouldn't put pictures of the products on the internet. Oh my goodness! <laughs> uh, you know, so, so stuff like that. Um, but you know, my my most memorable moments are are a lot of the people I've had the had the pleasure to meet. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, you yeah. Spend, you end up spending time, whether it's you know, in a warehouse, in a boardroom, when when there's you know. A half empty pizza box and you, you just you're you are working with someone to solve a problem and those those probably are, are the best parts of the career especially when you do solve the problem right yes <laughs> uh, yeah especially especially when you figure it out and and it's not you know and again i'm i'm making modest size investments at a at a you know almost a boutique size or small size firm uh and so it's not you know as seen on TV, cutthroat, throwing my cell phone, negotiating, you know, shark kind of things. It's, can I get credit back for this company? Can I get this company off of COD so I can manage our cash flow long enough to really stabilize it and get through a turnaround, right? It's, it, you know, it's it's not must-see TV kind of work, but it's uh, it's challenging. Right. Yeah. Yep. And now, do you have any advice for anyone that's getting into distressed private equity or, or thinking about getting into distressed, distressed private equity? Yeah. I, well, I think the, I think um, we'll, we'll do the private equity part first is okay. uh, I think the first piece of advice is, is you don't need an MBA. There's eight of us at our firm and only one MBA. You don't need an MBA. That was, even though I'm friends with these guys and I've known them for several years, even within our friendship, this was a this was a tough thing for me to grasp. I spent a lot of years looking down on myself for not having an MBA. I certainly don't look down on people that have them. I'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm very impressed by people that have them, but I looked down on myself for a very long time. And and what I learned, and I think for anyone who's seeking any career, unless it is something incredibly specialized, like uh, you want to be a surgeon or you want to be on the Supreme Court and, you know, you need your lawyer or, or for a surgeon, you need to have your boards or whatnot. Um, unless it is something like that with a very specific certificate, you know, again, a board surgeon or, or, or being a stock trader or, or investment banker, you need experience. That's it. Right. You need experience. Education is great. Experience is better. And it took me a very long time to realize that. Now, it, it certainly helps that I get to work with friends that I look up to uh, and that treat me very well and treat me very fairly and, and, and talk to me very fairly. You know, I'm not in a situation, there's, there's no levels of boardrooms and bosses above me who are you know, yelling about things and, or belittling. And I think a lot of people in finance do deal with that. I certainly have a lot of friends that have dealt with that in you know, Chicago and New York. And then as far as distressed goes, it's, there's only one book only one book if, if you really care it's um it's corporate turnaround by donald bebo it's i think it was published in 80 the mid 80s it's that's it it's you know how managers turn losers into winners it's a fascinating read because he talks about like how great kodak is and if you read it now it's kind of you know 
gone. You know, and he talks about Memorex and, and Texas Instruments and all these fascinating companies that, you know, you read this book 40 years after it was written, you really get to see what happened to them. But there is no, there's no direct path to working in turnaround. Uh, there's no direct path to working in in distress. You know, if you're you have if you're fresh out of B school and you go to New York City and someone may put you on a desk of buying and selling distressed debt, or you may learn about it. But if you want to get your hands on and get really get your hands on and get dirty fixing or working with companies going through problems, the only way to do it is is to do it. Yeah. Uh, good. Great advice. Great advice. All right. Well, Dan, we're at the end of this interview. Sure. Want to head over to this quick hitter session. We're going to ask you questions for fun. Okay. But before we do that, though, just want to find out if there's anything else you would like to discuss or anything you might have felt I might have left off asking you. No, no, I, I don't, I don't think you missed anything. And I, I hope I've done, uh, I hope I've done well, kind of explaining the intersection of experience and 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 again having friends that run a firm who, who trust my thesis. And I did have to bring them a thesis and, and a plan, but, but it's really all it is. It's, it's an intersection of experience and capital. Yeah. No, no. I thought you did a great job. I love it. Loved it. So yeah, let's head over to this quick hitter session. All right. Lightning round. <laughs> so first question, what's your favorite sports team? Uh, Lewis Hamilton. Lewis Hamilton. All right. Lewis Hamilton. He's not a team. He's 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 uh, the greatest Formula One driver of all time. Oh, okay. All right. I mean, you know, okay. I like I like the Yankees. Uh, you know, and uh, when I was a kid, I loved the Chicago Bulls. But Formula One, Lewis Hamilton's. Formula One, Lewis Hamilton. Okay. All right. And uh, favorite movie or show? Favorite movie is Flight of the Navigator. Mm. Wonderful time travel movie. Cutting edge computer graphics for the eighties. Uh, I absolutely love that movie. Nice. Favorite musical artist or group? Favorite musical artist or group? I'm currently listening to a lot of Fish, but being from upstate New York and having older siblings, there's a lot of Dave Matthews still, still pretty heavily in my life. But I think actually my personal favorite, I went way out of the way. I listen to a lot of Frank Zappa, uh, okay. specifically albums that Terry Bazio played on. Uh, anything Terry Bazio played, I want to listen to. Nice. Favorite vacation spot? Hong Kong. Oh yeah, just Haven't just been. give me just give me a few dollars for noodles and give me my camera and I'm good. That's it. Really? Yeah. Let me just photograph. Just just walk around the city. Give me like a give me an octopus card to get on the subway and I'm done. And how long do you need to stay there to really get as much as you can before before leaving? I don't think there's ever going to be a number. Uh, I mean, yeah, because uh, there's 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 too much. But if I'm within any proximity of Hong Kong, I'll try to cut out 48 hours. And just just hit my spots, go to my favorite restaurants, yeah, and and just kind of get that injection and recharge the batteries. I I don't know why my batteries don't recharge on the beach. They recharge in like the cacophony and yeah. the noise and the complexity of, of of cities. That's how I am. So when you go somewhere, you're not staying at an all inclusive resort or whatever. You're going into the it, eat where the natives eat. Like hang out with a name. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, I, uh, photography is, I think it's the only hobby I have left since, mm. uh, since my wife and I've had kids and <laughs> my golf clubs have a lot of dust on them. Uh, I, I just want to be with my camera in a major city. So Hong Kong is my favorite, but really I'll take New York, frankly. I don't have to go far. Uh, yeah. New York, San Francisco. Yeah. Nice. Well, be glad about the golf. I, I just pulled mine out right now and I've, I've been frustrated. So 
<laughs> Favorite food or drink? Favorite food. Uh, you know, I hate to go back to the Far East, but but I think you know, if my last meal uh, was um, it's it's pronounced Shaolambao. It's it's I think it translates to like hot steaming basket bun. It's a really mm. specific dumpling with rendered pork fat in it. And so you take a bite and it is hot and it burns your face. And it's, it's absolutely, it's these single bites of soup in, in a dumpling. I shall about, or my mother's, my mother's roasted chicken. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that sounds like Anthony. Uh, Bourdain. So, yes. so if you watch, if you watch the Shanghai episode, it's the first thing Okay. And he explains it and he probably pronounced it better than I do, but I think I got it right because I, I can spell it. Um, but it's Shaolong Bao. Uh, fa- favorite drink is uh, it's Dr. Pepper. Oh. I don't know. I, our, you know, our, our firm is based in Atlanta. I live in Charlotte and I always joke the Charlotte office is, is always stocked with Dr. Pepper. <laughs> nice. Well, hey, Dan, this has been great, man. I learned a lot from this, learned a lot. It's, it's been great discussing with you, talking to you about what you do and just about distressed private equity in general and, and private equity in general. And I think you're very uh, humble because uh, having a, a firm with $100 million, I believe you said $100 million in assets under management, that's, yeah, that that's, that's a really nice firm. So, hey, just congrats on all that you've done, man, and keep doing it. And thank you so much for coming on to this podcast. I, uh, I appreciate it very much. And, and this career opportunity is the ultimate reflection in the company you These are great, great people who I've been friends with for many years, and I'm, I'm honored to work with every day. Nice. And are you on social media or is there any way that people can get a hold of you if they have any comments or questions? My LinkedIn is my best. Is, okay. can, we, can you want to put that in the show notes? Is that yep. okay? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, on social media, it's, it, you know, it's I am golfer Dan because I did used to golf on Instagram, but all you're okay. going to see is you're going to see food and airplanes. And if you <laughs> like pictures of airplanes at I am golfer Dan, there was always going to be pictures of airplanes. Well, that sounds great. <laughs> well, thanks, Dan. Have a good one. My pleasure. Thank you, everyone. If you have any comments or questions or would like to be on the podcast, please reach out to me on Instagram at Rodolfo Cooper. Thank you. Bye.